Welcome to my nightmare. On Elm Street Podcast, that is. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this episode, we're going all in on A Nightmare on Elm Street. So grab a cup of coffee and never sleep again. Let's get things started. So on this episode, I was going to initially focus, obviously, you know, I'm posting this on Halloween. I wanted something that was keyed into that theme, focusing on a horror franchise. The obvious choice would have been the Saw franchise, which Jigsaw just came out. It's kind of a resurgence for that franchise after seven years. But I really, in order to do that, I would have had to go to see Jigsaw. And I'm kind of over that franchise. I don't know about you guys, but I've seen all seven Saw films. And they range from really uh, from really memorable, the first one, the sixth one, to kind of okay, not super great, but you know, entertaining enough, two, three, uh, even four maybe to a lesser extent, to kind of like ridiculous and terrible, five and seven. So I really felt like after seven movies with that, it just, you can, you can only bleed a story dry so much. So I heard that the reviews were middling, even from like, you know, critics that were not necessarily the New York Times, just, you know, YouTube critics and things like that. They were sort of, eh, it's fine, but it's not, it's nothing special. So I, I felt like I'd had a, a, a complete story from that franchise and I didn't really need to open that book back up again. For me personally. If you guys went to see it, enjoyed it, obviously, because it was number one, I believe, at the box office, which is depressing because there's other movies out there that I like much better, as you know, from listening to the previous episode. But um, so I, I came up with another option here and, uh, you know, I wanted to do a let's talk about six spoilers for later, later in the episode. Uh, and I wanted to focus on an iconic horror franchise that had been around and, and had enough ep- enough sequels for me to do, a, you know, a countdown sort of ranking of them. Uh, and ultimately, I decided just to devote this episode to Nightmare on Elm Street because it's probably of the big horror icons. And I'm talking about, you know, Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, um, Chucky, Leatherface, Ghostface and Pinhead. I've seen some entries of each of those, but none of them really compelled me enough to go back and watch the entire series. In fact, I don't think I've seen any uh, of any of those that I just mentioned. I don't think I've seen all of the films for any of them. Um, I've seen, you know, usually the original and then like kind of a couple standouts here and there based on who was involved or like, you know, who who from the original film came back either behind the camera or in front of it. and, you know, to that end, I recently watched Curse of Chucky and Cult of Chucky, which are sort of the soft reboot. Uh, you know, Curse of Chucky was basically the soft reboot for the Child's Play franchise after Bride of Chucky and Seed of Chucky with Don Mancini, the writer of the entire franchise, you know, kind of uh, going back to the horror roots. And I enjoy those a lot, but there's still a few gaps in my Chucky uh, history there. The only one, actually, the only one that I did mention that I have seen them all is uh, Scream, the ghost-faced and um, those are good, but there's also four of them. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot easier to to stay up on four movies. I haven't watched the TV series versus you know ten or seven or wherever some of the other ones are. So ultimately, I really like Nightmare on Elm Street for uh, for the fact that I I know the most about it. I'm the most um, well versed in that one. And it's funny because 
you know, just with a little background before we get into the uh, discussion of the films my, itself, a little background on my experience with the franchise. I grew up actually kind of scared of Freddy. Not, not my brother. That's another story. But, uh, you know, I had I actually had a Nightmare on Elm Street board game, which was really cool that I didn't appreciate and then got rid of and I wish I had. You know, the older you get, the more you lose things from your childhood and you kind of wish that you kept them around because you're like, fuck, I'm never going to find that again unless it's on eBay for like $300 or something, you know, some crazy amount of money. But I uh, played the board game and I was obviously very familiar, you know, growing up in the 90s, uh, you know, he was very much still around, even though the movies were sort of, sort of petering out by the mid 90s, he had been kind of put on ice again. Uh you know, I, I was very aware of him as sort of a pop cultural presence, going to the video store, go to the horror section, like a lot of kids that used to, you know, go to video stores, which just doesn't exist anymore. And that, that still bums me out. But going there and flipping over the boxes and looking at all the crazy shit on the back and just imagining, oh, my God, what is happening in this scene? And then flipping it back because it's a little scary, but you're still not not scared enough that you're not going to go to the next one to see what other kind of quasi disturbing images um that studio decided to put on the back so freddy krueger was a big was present in my life even before i saw any of the movies um and actually freddy versus jason which i know that might be blasphemous to some of the hardcore freddy krueger fans was probably my formal introduction to uh to the franchise i hadn't seen any of them really before that not even the original my parents you know aren't really big into horror movies so they weren't going to introduce me to that at any point and, uh, you know, I was already in my 20s by the time I saw Freddy vs. Jason. So then after I saw that, and that was a lot of fun, I still like that movie quite a bit. And try and go back to it, you know, not every Halloween because, you know, I, I have a kid now, I have a wife, she doesn't like that kind of thing very much. And, you know, uh, who has free time to watch, to revisit every single movie. But uh, that was sort of my entree into Freddy Krueger. And then he really, after a while going back and watching all the other movies, he, he quickly became my favorite slasher movie icon. And really one of my favorite horror movie characters ever. So, uh, with Halloween kind of around the corner, I thought it was worth a revisit just to look back at the phenomenon launched by the late, great Wes Craven back in 1984, which single-handedly, by the way, saved New Line Cinema long before Warner Brothers bought it. I mean, we're talking, this was the studio that, kind of emerged as kind of an indie production company in the early 90s with, um, you know, well, it emerged before that. It was Freddy Krueger, but merged blockbuster-wise with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in 1990, and then later was responsible for uh, the Austin Powers films, the Lord of the Rings films, and things like that. Um, so Freddy was, you know, the new line was jokingly, not so jokingly, because it's actually pretty accurate, referred to as the house that Freddy built. And uh, there's a lot of truth to that. This, this character is still such an icon for people that like horror movies and don't like horror movies. Everybody knows who Freddy Krueger is. And, um, you know, it's probably one of those staple horror uh, or Halloween costumes that still sells well every year, even though the original is, is from 30-something years ago, uh, 33 years ago to be exact. So worth, for sure, at least for me, you know, this Halloween to go back and look at the films in this franchise and um, kind of celebrate Halloween the way I normally do, which is going back and revisiting old favorites. And uh, I'm not going to do a Hocus Pocus episode, even though I could, because, you know, another film movie I grew up with and actually did see as a kid. Um, so uh, Freddy Krueger seemed like an obvious choice if I wasn't going to go down the Saw route. So um, first we're going to discuss the sequels, not counting the remake 
which uh, I don't hate as much as some people, but I definitely don't really love it. Um, it. It tries a lot of interesting, it tries some little things and it tries to toy with the formula uh, enough to, you know, I got to give it props for that, but it's definitely not, it's not worth discussing here if we're going to stick to the original. And I'm not going to be considering uh, the aforementioned Freddy vs. Jason crossover either. So before we delve into the classic original film in all its razor-gloved gory, um, excuse me, glory, as I said, Freddy, uh, Freddy Krueger, as played by Robert Englund, is such an icon and, the, you know, the very stuff that nightmares are made of. So let's review his reprisals of that iconic role in a new edition of Let's Talk About Six. Let's talk about six, baby. Let's talk about flicks and me. Let's talk about what the good films and the bad films are to me. Let's talk about six. Let's talk about six. Okay, as I said, on this edition of Let's Talk About Six, we're going to be talking about the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels. Not the remake, not the Freddy vs. Jason, the straight-up sequels to the original film. So at number six, we have Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. At this point of the franchise, you could really tell that everybody was over it. I mean, I don't really blame them because from 1984 to 1991, being on your sixth movie in seven years, that's that's some Harry Potter level shit. Uh, I mean, New Line was really churning these sequels out. So it makes sense that they wanted a, uh, a conclusion to the story. I just wish they did a better job of it. it it's... At, the, at this point, I think what happened was that Freddy Krueger was so well-known. As I said, he was such a pop-cultural icon. Uh, he, you know, instantly recognizable. Little kids knew who Freddy Krueger was. That kind of deflates um, what makes a character scary to begin with. So at this point, he's killing people in video games. He's he And commenting on the graphics. He's uh, dressing up and doing, like, Wizard of Oz parodies. It was really, really losing. It, it was... Not, it was like trying to be funny, but not funny, and not even really even giving a shit about being scary anymore. It was really such a misfire for me on many levels, especially since it was the last one. Uh, the I think the only really good thing I can say about Freddy's Dead is that um, it does try to further mythologize the character, giving him a daughter and trying half-assedly to ex explain a little bit of his upbringing, that he was abused by his stepfather, played by Alice Cooper for some reason. Uh, but it does this weird time jump where, you know, all the children in Springwood are dead, and, uh, you know, Tom Arnold and Roseanne are in it for some reason. I don't I don't know. It's, uh, it's all over the place. I do like the whole, you know, that they established that Freddy uh, made a deal with these demons, and then that's how he keeps coming back and has this, these powers and all that. But it, it was really too little, too late at that point. Uh, I don't, I don't think they put enough uh, work into trying to get the character back to his roots. It was just the final nail in the coffin, much like Saw, the final chapter, which also was sort of a half-assed kind of parody of itself at that point. Um, Basically felt like a pointless endeavor and uh, had a great horror franchise seemingly go out with a whimper. And number five, we have A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. I know a lot of people really like this one and um, I can sort of see why it has a lot of campy value to it. Um, the whole bus sequence at the beginning and then I, I think it, I think it's again with the, at the end. I think it's sort of a, um, you know, bookends the film. Um, 
there are very much elements in this film that are formulaic from the first film that carry over. And it does try to do something a little bit fresh in that Freddy Krueger this time around actually tries to possess the body of the main character and enter the real world. Um, never mind the fact that it doesn't really make any sense with the rules of the franchise and the character that have previously been established. I guess Freddy Krueger can kind of do whatever the script needs him to do, which, you know, I'm fine with that. I mean, I just talked about Curse of Chucky and Cult of Chucky, which are play very fast and loose with the rules of uh, of the uh, of the character and the mythology of this of the series. So, you know, we do get that great moment where he emerges from the lead character's body and uh, kind of wreaks havoc at a teenage party, and that we get that great line of "You're all my children now," which is super iconic. Uh, I I just for me the film was a little too over the top. The acting is really terrible. As it's so bad, it's good watch. It probably works. I haven't really revisited it in that regard. And I know that it gets a, it has a, quite a reputation for all its homoerotic undertones. Um, and, you know, maybe one of these days, of all the films on this list, this is probably the one I, I could do with a re revisit just to see if I can read any more of, uh, of that uh, kind of rewatchability that's inherent in the ridiculousness and sort of symbolism and, um, you know... Uh, deeper levels of subtext that I guess a lot of other people are getting out of it. So going into number four, we have A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. Now, just like I said Fred, about Freddy's Revenge, that I like that it tries to do some new things. In this one, uh, Freddy actually tries to possess the uh, unborn child of the main character here, who's actually a carryover from A Nightmare on Elm Street 4. That is, of course, Alice, played by Lisa Wilcox. Um, which was played in the previous film by, I don't remember, another character. But I know that she was a carryover from the fourth one. And uh, it, it's interesting because in this movie, it, 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 it what this, this movie does so great is some of the dream sequences. It's just, for me personally, the, the gothic tone is great. I love the gothic tone that they have going on here. And it's, they're very, like, super macabre. Like, even... To me, this movie, what, what turns me off about this movie is that some of the gore, the scene where, you know, um, Freddy is sort of force feeding this woman at like this big dinner table, like dressed as a chef, like cooking her organs and like, it just goes too far to the point for me there, it comes kind of sickening and it's not, it's not uh, entertaining. It just becomes kind of gross and uncomfortable to watch. And this movie had that problem. I did think that, you know, sort of. Afterward, the, the kind of end of it with Freddy and, and uh, Alice's sort of showdown, I thought that was really cool. And um, there's a lot of good stuff going on in the movie, like stylistically. But for me, the plot was very thin and the uh, some of the, the kills and everything were a little too over the top, even for Freddy Krueger. And was more on, this, on the gross than scary side. And that's never been my style. Um, again, the movie, this one actually was directed by Stephen Hopkins. I should probably start, <laughs> should probably name the directors as I go through these. I keep forgetting to do that. Um, uh, Freddy's Dead was directed by Rachel Talali, the only female to direct this these films, actually. And uh, Freddy's Revenge was directed by Jack Shoulder, by the way. So shout-outs to those two that I forgot. But uh, So Stephen Hopkins directed this one. And um, it's it's fine. It's not one I would really want to revisit, but it's, you know, I can't fault 
my own personal taste, I can't fault the movie for that too much. Uh, it still ends up kind of low on this list, though. As far as number three, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. This one was fine. Uh, I think it tries to do a follow-up to A Nightmare on Elm Street 3. It really felt like they were trying to turn uh, the character of Alice into the new Nancy. I don't think it works. I think, um, you know, it makes a valiant effort here and tries to uh, tr tries to develop that, but it doesn't really... She's not really a compelling enough character. You never really root for her the way that, uh, the way that you did Nancy in the original film. And um, it's it just, I don't know, to me it just sort of, it's, it's just sort of fine. Like this is, this is the line for me. Four, <clears throat> as far as this countdown is concerned, five, six, and two are the ones that I'm sort of like iffy and negative about. Four to me is right in the middle. It's, a, it's a decent film. It's not... It's not over. It's not super innovative. It doesn't do anything amazing. It doesn't blow me away as a Freddy Krueger and Nightmare on Elm Street fan. Uh, but the direction is tight. The the performances are all right. There's a lot of great Freddy moments in it. Um, and you know, it's not it's not uh, it's not surprising that the film kind of moves along because it was directed by Rennie Harlan who did Die Hard 2, Cliffhanger, Long Kiss Goodnight, Deep Blue Sea. He has a he has a, a pretty decent track record of solid films. Uh, most of those I just said are pretty good. Uh, but for me, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, it's just... It's sort of... By this point, I think the franchise was running on autopilot. And they knew what worked, and they, and they had a formula like, all right... This girl, boom, she's our main person. These are her friends, boom, they're gonna get killed. And yes, that is the formula. Uh, that is that is the formula for a slasher film. But for me, this film doesn't do anything to make it worthwhile. There's nothing different really here. There's nothing fresh. There's nothing. Uh, there's nothing to keep the series alive. Even Saw Four, which is not a good film, really. It's kind of again, sort of with Elm Street, very middle of the road for me as far as the seven of them cumulatively uh it, it even that film tries some interesting things with its timeline and throws you off by the end it has a, a twist that that uh kind of makes the experience worthwhile even if the film itself is not really that memorable um so the dream master is that for me it's that middle ground where i'm like okay not not perfect not not something that i want to revisit on a regular basis but not a piece of crap either so i'm very i'm very hit and miss on that one number two on this list a nightmare on elm street three dream warriors now this is a great one and i know a lot of people some people will say this is pretty this is the second best behind the original some people might even say it's their it's their personal favorite over the original i, I don't I, I mean i don't know anybody that would say that but i'm sure that you're out there but this film was very much a return to form. If I had issues with A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and I did, this is the film that felt like it should have been A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Uh, that movie sort of sweeps away Nancy's story, and this one picks it back up. And she reemerges in a sane asylum where these kids are locked up. And, um, well, I guess it's in a sane asylum or a mental hospital. Whatever, same difference. Um, she she shows up here as a counselor, and she realizes that Freddy Krueger is is the one tormenting them. And lucky for them that, that they have a a counselor that has personal experience with Freddy Krueger. 
uh, and can actually help them uh, help them you know become dream warriors and I love the concept here of Freddie and Nancy kind of going up against each other again you know old rivals someone who has a personal uh, a personal vendetta against Freddie and I think that makes that dynamic um, um, a lot richer than it does with you know Alice and the other movies and that kind of thing um, that added that add to that the fact that this one has the whole concept of harnessing the power that you have, the power of your own mind within your dream. That's a great concept, and it, and they really run with that here in all kinds of interesting and innovative ways. The some of the kills are are super are super memorable. I would say some of the most impressive kills of the franchise, and the most quotable, and the most visually uh, arresting moments of the series are in this one um we're talking the welcome to prime time bitch with the tv we're talking uh freddy krueger basically turning one of the characters into a marionette and having them leap to their doom to an apparent suicide all of that stuff uh i think really works and uh you know it helps the fact that this movie also has wes craven back as a producer this time and he puts his, he puts his his touch to this one and um, I believe he also did, yeah, he also worked on the screenplay with the director Chuck Russell and Bruce Wagner and Frank Darabont, actually. I actually didn't even know that until just now. I kind of forgot he was involved here. But uh, Chuck Russell, who's also did the uh, 1988 remake of The Blob. He did The Mask, which I love. He did Eraser, which is okay. He did The Scorpion King, which is not so much. Um, so Chuck Russell, Charles Russell, however you want to say it. Um, he is, he's is another filmmaker that I, I basically, I think kind of got his start in this franchise. This was his directorial debut and his visual style really fits this one nicely. You have, uh, young Lawrence Fishburne in this and it's really the film that the second film should have been. I can't recommend it highly enough. It does a lot to even mythologize Freddy Krueger in a way that the second movie just sort of sidestepped sidestepped the Nancy stuff, sidestepped Freddy Krueger, and just sort of had him randomly possess this kid, and like a new, really terrible protagonist. Uh, this one enriches what was in the first movie um, by explaining that he was actually the son of a hundred maniacs, that his mother was a nun locked in an, an insane asylum this time, and, uh, and that's how Freddy Krueger came to be. I think that makes his, you know, that makes him that much more terrifying. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, this is a great, it's a great one. It's not necessarily, you know, a masterpiece. I wouldn't say it's like, um, you know, a, a hallmark of horror cinema, but as far as horror sequels go, it's a ton of fun. And, um, you know, I would, if you're doing, if you're doing a selected Freddy Krueger marathon, I would just go straight from the first one to this, just me personally. So, and I wouldn't leave out this one, of course, number one. Wes Craven's New Nightmare. This was 10 years after the original film. Wes Craven came back to write and direct it. And uh, it's the seventh entry in the film series. And I think basically Wes Craven, Robert Englund, I think they realized that Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare was not very good. And they wanted to sort of reclaim their legacy of this, the legacy of this character, the legacy of this franchise, and bring it back on a high note by doing something a lot you know, a bit different with it. Um, so in this case, Wes Craven took that to mean we're going to go, we're going to go meta with it. And it's interesting that this comes out two years before Scream where he really embraced that. It did feel 
looking back that New Nightmare was Wes Craven's sort of um, testing ground for the idea of a meta horror movie, which he really leaned into in Scream and its sequels, all of which he directed. So this movie focuses not on Nancy, but on Heather Langenkamp, the actress who played Nancy in the first film and the third film. And the premise here is that Wes Craven had a nightmare, had a, a as the title entails or, or describes, and um, you know he wants to make one more film with Freddy. And the series, essentially, the character is sort of keeping a because the movies have ended. There's a like demonic force out there that likes to take the form of Freddy. And the franchise has ended, and that's sort of let that creature loose again. And he's starting to cross over into the real world. Which to me is, is, as a movie fan, making a movie about a a horror franchise crossing over into real life on the set of a movie is is kind of genius. Um, I think that Robert Englund brings a new level of ferocity to Freddy this time around. I mean, let's let's just throw this one out there. Robert Englund is great in Freddy Krueger in all these movies, even in when he's asked to do terrible, ridiculous shit. He's fun to watch. Does it help the Does it help or hurt the movie? Yeah, of course. If, it, if the movie doesn't work, it's not because of him. It's because the script and and you know the uh, the characters are not interesting, or the other people around him, or, or you know the ones we have to root for. Even though you're, let's break it down. You're mostly rooting for Freddy Krueger in these movies. But um, in New Nightmare, he brings a new sort of energy to it. And you get a a slightly tweaked Freddy Krueger makeup design. He has kind of a demonic form at one point. uh, Much, much darker face. And, um, you know, his face-offs with Heather Langenkamp in this are really fun. Especially the first one where he actually crosses over into the real world. And he's like, miss me. And, um... You know, it, it does get a little bit heavy-handed with the whole dark fantasy element of it. Like, it becomes sort of fairy tale-ish in the finale. And I think that some of that hurts the overall film. I think the last 20 minutes goes a little too broad and a little too over the top with it. Um, but for the most part, this is a really smart, really fun installment to the franchise that kind of reminds us why it's a great why uh, why Nancy was a character we rooted for in the previous films, why Robert Englund has, you know, been associated with this role forever and it's going to be remembered for it long after he knows he's, he's no longer with us. Um, New Nightmare, honestly, is probably the one of the films here that I've seen the most, uh, simply because it's been, it was on TV a lot, <laughs> like a few years ago. So I, um, I have a lot of experience with New Nightmare itself. Is it the best film in the franchise? No, that still goes to the original. Spoilers, I guess, for that upcoming review. But, um, you know, it's very rare for a franchise in its seventh installment to reinvent itself as much as New Nightmare does here. Not only does Wes Craven sort of reclaim the reins to the franchise that late in in the game, but he redeems some of its lesser sequels. And... As a whole, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, that is the first seven, um, its overall reputation, I think, is salvaged and retroactively boosted a little bit by just how good this film is, how great Heather Langenkamp is, how smart the script is, how, um, you know, actually Robert Englund even appears in this film as Robert Englund at one point. Um, you know, the child actor here, Miko Hughes, who was also in Pet Cemetery. And he's you know done a lot, did a lot of TV and stuff in the early '90s. He's a little a little much in certain scenes, 
but for the most part, it, it doesn't take away from the story. I think the uh, I think New Nightmare is very underrated. I've actually written articles for you know before about horror sequels that are are overlooked that people sort of write off because you know it's easy to write off a horror sequel in a franchise where there's seven, eight, nine, ten, or however many there are of. Uh, I think there's what is there eleven uh, Friday no twelve Friday Thirteenth movies. That's weird because there was the remake. Uh, and you know we're getting up to like nine or ten Halloweens. It's easy to just discount those movies, but uh, I think for those of you that didn't see New Nightmare, and I know it did not do particularly well at the box office, I would definitely recommend checking it out, sort of tracking it down. Um, Wes Craven has a pretty good track record, obviously, of making horror films, and uh, you know skip ones like Cursed, which is like Cursed, which is pretty. Yeah, pretty mediocre. Um, and check out New Nightmare. It's definitely worth your time, especially if you're a fan of the original film. You can actually even watch the original film and then just watch this one if you really don't want to get involved in all the rigmarole, so to speak, of the uh, you know two through six, which are is a roller coaster ride of quality, as I just outlined. But uh, New Nightmare definitely stands heads and shoulders head and shoulders above the rest of the sequels. So those are my thoughts on the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels. That leads us right into my review of the original 1984 classic, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. No! She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails... I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. No one will survive. From Wes Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, a new masterpiece in fantasy terror, Nightmare on Elm Street. It's kind of insane to think of a time when Wes Craven was not known as the director of A Nightmare on Elm Street. But uh, there you have it. And um, how dated was that 1984 uh, trailer voiceover? It's also kind of crazy looking back at, to digress for a second, or take a little bit of a tangent. It's crazy how some of those old trailers really give away a lot of the key sequences. If you went back, if you go up and look up this trailer on YouTube, they show you pretty much every death scene. There is no, I mean, this, that movie does not have, A Nightmare on Elm Street does not have that big of a body count. And uh, I think you see Tina's, spoilers, you see Tina's death, Rod's death. Uh, you know, Glenn's death, everybody's death is in this trailer, pretty much. There's no... The gore, yeah, the gore is, is not really in there. But uh, as far as how they die under what circumstances, that's uh, that's kind of all there. The, the big shock moments, it's... Avoid the trailer for this if you haven't seen the movie, because it's... You're, you know... If, well, if you haven't seen the movie by now, it's been 33 years, you, you need to get the fuck on it. Because A Nightmare on Elm Street is a great film, and we'll get into that now. So going back to the beginning of this review, we're going to talk about the hype, the story, the cast, the production, and uh, of course the verdict. So talking about the hype, when this film came out, it was, as the trailer clip just said, Wes Craven was known as the guy behind the Hills of Eyes and the Last House on the Left. But when this movie came out, it became a phenomenon. And eventually there's 7,000 sequels that followed, which we've already discussed have made Freddy Krueger a one of the ro- most recognizable movie characters of all time. 
So this film has quite a reputation now that it's cultivated over the last 30 plus years. But, you know, is that reputation really valid? Is it one of those movies that was huge at the time, but then looking back, you're like, eh, really? I don't understand why this is such an influence on cinema. Why, you know, why, um, what, what this contributes to the cinematic conversation. And I think at this point, what was going on is that slasher films were big. You had your Halloween, you had your Friday the 13th, you had uh, many other films trying to be those franchises. And Wes Craven read an article about someone that reportedly died from being scared in their dream or, or some such some, some such bullshit. Uh, not necessarily calling the story bullshit, but some such crazy stuff that he read in the news that led him to, well, what if you can't get away from the killer and you, when you go to sleep? you just Even when you dream, you can't hide from, from him. Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers... Yeah, you can, you know, you go to sleep, you're you're not safe because he can still find you physically, but he can't hunt you in your dreams. So why not create a character that can go after you when you're at your most vulnerable? When you're you think that you, no one can touch you because you're lost in the in the spiral of your own mind and your own thoughts, and he can actually come up over you after you there, kill you in your dreams and have that carry over into the with real world repercussions. And it's that genius idea that really struck a chord with audiences in 1984 and continues to do so now. So going into the story, the story, of course, is we're in Springwood and we focus on a group of kids. Nancy, played by Heather Lankenkamp, as we mentioned. Glenn, played by a very young Johnny Depp in his first film role. And their friends, Tina and Rod. And of course, by the end of the film, Nancy, uh, Nancy sort of becomes the... I mean, she's kind of the protagonist from the beginning, but it's more of an ensemble at the very beginning. And little by little, crazy shit starts to happen. And, uh, you know, they all realize that they've been dreaming about this mysterious man with a brown fedora and a red and green sweater and a razor, you know, a glove with razor, razor nails, razor fingers. Um, and it's all about Nancy. I'm not going to get into spoilers too much for even though I already did spoil it for you. But... Um, you know, Nancy goes into the backstory and kind of stumbles on who Freddy Krueger was. And, uh, you know what, fuck it. I just decided, let's just do spoilers. <laughs> and Because, I mean, you guys know who this is already. You guys know what this movie is. You know what the story is. This is, this is the film that establishes that Freddy Krueger was a child murderer. And as later sequels sort of establish, uh, may have, you know molested those kids first and kind of you know been a sexual deviant in addition to murdering these little kids throughout the neighborhood so this film establishes that he was taken out by a bunch of parents based on vigilante justice and uh, comes back to recruit to to seek revenge on uh, on the kids in that town and and you know um, and the parents by killing their children forevermore until the end of time blah 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 so that in and of itself raises all kinds of questions about you know, uh, vigilante justice, whether they were justified in doing that, um, you know, whether, as this, the remake kind of questions whether or not Freddy Krueger was even guilty of that in the first place, which I think is an interesting concept to explore, although it didn't really do that in a very uh, satisfying way. So the movie focuses on Nancy trying to unravel the mystery behind Freddy Krueger and take him down and protect her family and protect, you know, her friends, at least initially, 
And along the way, there's some grisly death scenes and a final showdown with Nancy and Freddy Krueger. Going into the cast, Heather Langenkamp for a 20-year-old in this film, uh, 20-year-old for Heather Langenkamp cast in this movie. She does a she does a great job of grounding the film and even though you know her acting is a little spotty here and there she is very much a strong female character and really kind of created to me it's nancy thompson and it's laurie strode those are your two big final girls um in these films and really created the vision of what a scream queen is of course, Laurie Strode is probably the most, the most, you know, iconic, the first one that people think of. But I think Heather Langenkamp, um, she really drives this story, and she's probably even more active a, uh, a female lead than Laurie Strode. In that movie, she spends a lot of time, like, you know, protecting the kids and trying to run away from Michael Myers, that kind of thing. But in this one, Nancy seeks out Freddy Krueger. She finds out who he is. She sets traps in her house, how Home Alone style, to bring him into the real world so that she can get rid of him. Ultimately, ultimately stumbling across the fact that it's her fear that drives him. Just like Dream Warriors taps into, it's a lot of this is all within your control. It's within your own mind, so you should be the one to feel empowered, right? If you're dreaming and this scary guy with razor nails, razor sharp, uh, you know, glove comes at you you should know hey this is my dream you don't belong here and you should be able to get rid of him and so she is very you know nancy in a way is a very empowered character and i think heather langham brings a lot to that and uh, just does authentically feel like a teenage girl even though she was 20 uh, or so when this film was released does very much feel like a real person um, that you can root for and uh, very very much a problem solver and basically takes the plot of this film and grabs it by the balls and uh, looks for a way to fight back. And I think that's really remarkable. I think uh, that Langenkamp does a great job at conveying that. And it's exciting that we get to see her explore that character more in the third one and then again in New Nightmare, albeit in a new way. Uh, John Saxon is is great as her father, the local cop, sheriff in the town. Uh, Ronnie Blakely as her mom is very memorable performance. Um, you know, Amanda Wiss, Sue Garcia are great as Tina and Rod with what they have to do. Um, you know, they, a lot of times they're just screaming in shock and terror, and that can cross sometimes cross a line from uh, terrifying to sort of hamming it up a little bit and there's not thankfully not too much when that really happens in this movie that would be more the sequels when that kind of thing goes down johnny depp is very charming in here as i said in his feature film debut and of course robert england finds uh the perfect balance in this movie of letting freddy mouth off and letting freddy sort of torment his victim psychologically by slicing his fingers by by you know chasing after them gleefully sort of laughing to himself but he really plays with the the uh kind of evil trickster element of freddy krueger in this movie without spouting out catchphrases and without um you know without becoming a cartoon character uh i think in the third movie which i already mentioned i liked quite a bit i think in that movie he's spouting the catchphrases but he's still scary in a different way 
but in this movie he is truly the boogeyman and he uh you know he he is the thing that everyone fears and i feel like because of this movie freddy krueger is now the most i i keep saying that word iconic but everything about this character in this this film specifically really is that um he is by all accounts the go-to archetype of what a boogeyman is and a lot of that goes back to robert england's performance and he's always been very supportive of this franchise he's uh, always been game for working with all the different directors and playing this character however they present him uh you know whatever scripts they present him with he's very all all about elevating everything with his performance style and you know i can't say highly enough how great Robert Englund is as this character. I mean, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, those are those are essentially the, you know, the the uh, trio of slasher film, you know, the granddaddies of slasher film horror movies. Uh, slasher film horror. That's that's very repetitive, but you know what I mean. Those are the three the three pillars, and with maybe the fourth in that Mount Rushmore of slasher icons being Leatherface because he does predate them all. But um, as far as Robert Englund's Freddy Krueger, all those other characters, Leatherface, Jason Voorhees, Michael, Moore, Michael Myers, have been played by different actors. Robert Englund is the only actor that can play Freddy Krueger in this way. He, he owns this character. And so he, much like Tobin Bell in the Saw movies as Jigsaw, he is, is, there's, and there's no way to unravel those two. I mean, they tried in the remake to have Jackie Earl Haley, and Jackie Earl Haley did a good job for what he had. Character design looks a little weird in the film I have, I have many issues with. But Robert Englund is Freddy Krueger. And, uh, you know, it's really sad for me to say that the fact that, you know, he said recently about how he feels that he's too old to play this character again. I disagree. I think you can be... 90 years old and put on that makeup as long as you can cackle and you know hold up a glove to your face and and like whisper menacingly and at teenagers i think that you can i would be all about if they wanted to do another movie a sequel to freddy versus jason i know don mancini of the chucky films i know he wants to he was floating around the idea of a freddy and chucky kind of crossing paths i think that would be brilliant because they have very similar sensibilities um you know i'm all about doing a, a monster mash up of any any um, combination. I just want to see Robert Englund as that character, hopefully one more time uh, before he, you know, really doesn't, he's really old and he really doesn't want to do it and he retires or whatever. But, um, you know, I, I think he is just so great as this guy and he just seems like such a cool person in real life in general. Uh, so it's nice to have an actor playing such a, such a remarkable role and, uh, and you know, uh, sort of exude that, that sense of pride and that sense of ownership and, um, you know, thankfulness to the career that he basically can credit almost exclusively to Freddy Krueger, which has kept him in the, uh, in the limelight for so many decades. Going into the production, there are so many cool things in this movie that I really love. Um, the cinematography is incredible the score by charles bernstein bing 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 i'm gonna get sued now no uh, it's just so great it's a little dated as far as 80s or you know 80s synth music there's some of that but it also really contributes to the otherworldly feel of a nightmare on elm street sort of like blade runner and vangelis's score there where it does feel 
very 80s but also very much its own th- its own thing i think uh charles bernstein's score is very much that for nightmare on elm street it's it uh it's so tightly wound into the film itself and the franchise that you know they still have to use that one two freddy's coming for you thing uh, in every single movie just because the fans expect it it's uh, it's one of the hallmarks of these films um visual effects and this movie was made for 1.8 million according to my research it made 25.5 million at the u.s box office but 1.8 million is unbelievable it's you can there's scenes in this movie that they did with practical effects that now they would do with cg now this movie would probably cost 80 million easy um i'm talking specifically about the uh you know tina on the roof and being kind of dragged across by freddy krueger and uh glenn and the geyser of blood coming out of his bed which is an incredibly dark creepy fucked up and but also kind of beautiful image of the blood sort of pouring onto the ceiling and uh which they accomplished that i don't know those of you that are elm street fanatics and watched the special features and stuff or listen to the commentary but they accomplished that by having a revolving room where they they turned the whole room around and dumped this blood down and then put it in slow motion that kind of out of the box thinking is what makes movies great it's what makes uh, for some of the best images in film. not None of this CG for CG's sake. It's like practical effects you cannot compete with. The authenticity that comes with that. Uh, I'm talking also about Freddy sort of leaning in on uh, Nancy's wall above her. Which they just used this fabric and had uh, the actor. I don't know if it was Englund himself or, or a stand-in or something. Sort of lean in. But it looks real it looks realistic it looks like some kind of animation and they that was done practically uh so many things in this film uh the art direction in freddy's boiler room which you know would come to be basically be freddy's lair a lot of times in uh, in the dream world in sequels and such the visual look of this movie is amazing the editing is really sharp uh it's a nice tight 91 minutes which is the perfect link for a horror movie like this get in scare the shit out of people and get out um the only couple things in this movie where the visuals do not live up to uh scrutiny is the the ending with the mom getting pulled through the door that's so clearly a dummy and it's really really bad but uh for the most part incredible visually and narratively the uh the production here is top notch and it still holds up 30 something years later which is quite an accomplishment going into the verdict in case you haven't can tell i love this movie uh i've seen a nightmare on Elm street many times it's among my favorite horror movies of all time i think it's wes craven's crowning achievement it's easily for me a 4.5 if not a 5 i think i may have just given it a 5 on letterboxd because it does deserve such a higher rating. It's eminently rewatchable, um, and it has had such a tremendous influence on horror films that followed, on Craven's career, on England's career, on uh, you know pop culture in general. Um, there was a time where Freddy Krueger was everywhere in you know the subsequent years after this movie, to the point that the studio was pumping out a sequel a year, pretty much, almost. And... Um, it all starts with A Nightmare on Elm Street, the OG, and happy to say that it does live up to the hype. This is one of those rare 
horror icon and uh, releases, iconic releases like Halloween um, that I think cannot really be overestimated its impact or just how good it really is. So get thee to a DVD or Blu-ray player or streaming service or wherever and uh, check out A Nightmare on Elm Street either Halloween if you're listening to this on Halloween or sometime soon it's really one of those it's one of those evergreen horror movies that you can watch pretty much ever t- any time of year and uh, it works just as well um, and uh, you know you're guaranteed to have a great time and really appreciate the aesthetics of what Wes Craven RIP uh, accomplished in this film so that's my review of A Nightmare on Elm Street I hope you guys enjoyed this Halloween timed uh, Wes Craven Elm Street franchise retrospective. Uh, I'd like to do things like this every once in a while with a, uh, whether it's a director or a film series or something, just kind of take an episode and not focus so much on a current release. Just uh, go back and be like, well, let's, let's dust this off the shelf. Let's talk about this. I haven't, I haven't discussed this on the, on the podcast before and use that opportunity to do that. Um, Of course, in the weeks ahead, we will have plenty of discussion of Thor Ragnarok and Justice League and The Last Jedi and all of that. But uh, it's nice to kind of take this little pause before the holiday film season and uh, awards, uh, awards season and all that really kicks in and, and take a look at a classic. So that's like I said, that's all we have for now. You can rate and review the Crooked Table podcast on iTunes if you'd be so kind. or also on Stitcher. Find me, Robert Yanis Jr., on Twitter, at Crooked Table. We're also on Facebook and the other social medias. You can find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies at CrookedTable.com. Next episode, what are we doing next episode? Next episode, we will probably be talking about Thor Ragnarok. Because uh, if there's anything we like at this podcast, other than Star Wars, which I probably have talked about more than anything... It is uh, his superhero stuff. So looking forward to Thor Ragnarok. Heard great things thus far. Uh, I'm actually a fan of the first Thor quite a bit. Um, it's not not my the top of my uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe ranking, but it's it's the top of the middle. Not so much with Thor: uh, The Dark World, but uh, the original Thor definitely is is a fun movie, and I've heard this one is much better. So uh, I love Taika Waititi, love the cast that they put together and the direction that they're taking this with the Hulk, with Kate Blanchett. So I'm looking forward to talking to you guys about that next week. But uh, that's all I have this episode of the Crooked Table Podcast. Thanks for listening and roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED.